Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Hear God's word to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had made the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Nice little cheery note there at the end, huh? <clears throat> Hello, uh, I am the person with the Britney Spears mic that was mentioned earlier. Um, my name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here. It is really great to be together with you for many of your three-day weekend, right? Tomorrow's President's Day, so thanks for taking your time to be here with us today. Some of you are like, three-day weekend? What are you talking about? Well, either way, I'm glad you're here. Um, and I want to give you just a quick window into kind of my week, something that happens many days uh, during the week after I've had a long day's work. I walk in the back door and I hear this high-pitched scream of excitement. No, it's not Allie. Um, I hear this high-pitched scream <laughs> of excitement and then followed up with this little pitter-patter of footsteps and it's my daughter, Ava, and she usually says, Daddy, Daddy, look! And she's either made something and she's holding it in her hands or it's up on the fridge when I walk in the back door and it could be, right, oh yeah, come on, I was working for that. <laughs> I could have put a picture of a puppy dog out there. But anyway, look, look, so she, 
She scribbles these little things on a piece of paper, and it looks like just lines, but she has a whole story behind it, right? She could be cutting out hearts and coloring them with my wife, Allie. Whatever it is, though, um, my highlight, this world over, one of my favorite things is the look on my daughter's face when I either hunch over and, you know, hold her with my arms or whatever, and I say, great job, sweetie. I'm so proud of you. And that's not... That's not cheap praise either. It's not just like fatherhood sentimentality here. Like in her development, it takes a lot to concentrate, to sit there with those markers or a glue stick, you know, and to create what she's created. It's not cheap praise. And, and usually when I say that, the look on her face, she gets this big beaming smile. And she leans in usually for this hug. And it's one of my favorite things this world over. It's I like to think it's one of the things that she's aching for, one of the things she's looking forward to while she's creating whatever she's creating, that when her daddy gets home, she knows I'm going to say, well done, well done. And I'm, I'm fairly convinced that we never really grow out of that, do we? We all, wanna, we all want, every single one of us wants to hear well done. We ache for it, that when we get to the end of our lives, we want to know that we didn't waste our lives, that we did something good with what we were allotted in life. And it's not, I think, it's not just that we want to hear well done. I think many of us believe that we deserve to hear well done when we've done really good work, right? Okay, just think about that time when you were at work and you worked really hard on a project, like really hard, and no one paid attention to it. Or worse, someone took credit for your hard work and you overhear your boss begin to give them praise. Think about what's going on inside of you in that moment. What's the feeling? It's this, it's this anger, this deep sense of injustice. Because we believe that not only do we want to hear well done, we deserve it when we've actually done good work well done. And you know... When we think about not only wanting well done and feeling like we deserve it, we, we know we have to have that well done from someone other than ourselves. We can't just look in the mirror and say, I see pride, I see power, right? You, you, <clears throat> you need to hear from someone you trust, someone who knows what they're talking about, someone who knows you, that when they look at you, it carries so much weight behind their words. And I think if we dig just a smidge deeper, there's probably nothing more painful, nothing more damaging than when somebody knows you and, and you know they know what they're talking about. Maybe it's a boss, a teacher, a parent, a sibling, a friend. And after you've worked so hard, instead of offering up praise, they come with this incessant criticism. There's probably nothing more damning and damaging than when you've worked so hard and it's really good work well done and instead of offering affirmation, they come with this incessant critique. Instead of pursuing your good, it feels like they're always lurking in the shadows just ready to, to catch you when you drop the ball and shove your face in it. That can absolutely destroy a person, can't it? And some of you, I know your story, some of you grew up in homes like that where that was the atmosphere. Some of you feel like that may be your work environment. Others of you, you may feel like your marriage is there or a former spouse was like that. And in the midst of so much pain and brokenness, when we finally come to approach God, when we come to approach God, I think we can bring all of that baggage and think that God is more or less the same. 
that he's not someone who wants to glory in our successes, but instead is someone who's lurking in the shadows, ready to catch us with our mistakes. That he's impossible to please, that he's overbearing, that he's judgmental. Hear me this morning. There's nothing further from the truth. We're going to learn something that's absolutely essential to understand who God is and his character and how he works in the world. And if we miss this, we're going to misunderstand who God is and what it means to follow him. And so today when we come to our passage, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find that God wants to say, well done. Like a father with his child, he he wants to come and say, great job, son. Great job, daughter. I'm so proud of you. And he wants to say that to you, and he wants to say that to me, and he's gone through unheard of, untold lengths so that we can have the ears to hear when he actually speaks that to us. He's gone through untold lengths that our hearts might be in a place where we can actually receive that affirmation and it not destroy us. He's gone through untold lengths that we can actually live with joy and light of that affirmation. Now, if you're new with us, we're we're not just saying this. We didn't come to this discovery because it sounds good or it makes us feel good because it surely does feel good to hear this, doesn't it? Good news is good for the soul. But instead, we discover this news as we are taking a deliberate walk through Matthew's gospel account. Matthew, who walked and talked with Jesus in the first century, wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know what Jesus has done for us. And he gives us this unique window into the final week of Jesus' life, where Jesus goes into his final section of teaching, what is often called the Olivet Discourse. And here, Jesus through this unique story that we're going to unpack, a familiar story to many, but I think still holds quite a bit of surprises, a story in which Jesus shows us what it looks like to follow him between his first and second coming. So why don't we take a look at that together here in Matthew's Gospel account. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25, which if you are using one of our community Bibles on the back, it's page number 830, page number 830. So when Jesus starts here in verse 14 with, it will be like, he's referencing what he had already mentioned back in verse 1. He's talking about the kingdom. So in other words, when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, it's going to look like a businessman who's about to go away on a business trip and he brings together his servants. The master, he knows these servants. He spent a lot of time with these servants. He knows their capacity. He knows their abilities, what they can handle, how they can also further the business's aims. And so he begins to divvy out these various responsibilities based upon each and, and each of these servants' ability. And why does he do this? Because he's really a wise businessman. You don't ask the employee who is terrified of public speaking to give the pitch before your primary client. (laughs) That's just not smart business. That's not good for the business. That's not good for all the employees. And it's not good for that employee. And so what we see is that the master, this business owner, he assesses the ability of each servant and he gives to one servant five talents, to another servant two talents, and to the final servant one talent. And just so you know, A talent is a financial unit of measurement representing roughly 20 years' wages of an average day laborer. And so in today's terms, that's roughly, one talent would be about one and a quarter million dollars. Not too shabby, right? I'd take that job. (laughs) Oh, you want want somebody to do something with that money? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. 
Now, so after he kind of puts all this money out on the table, the business uh, owner, he heads out of town. And the first two servants, they feel the weight of responsibility around this huge sum of money. And the text says at once they get to work. They start setting up businesses, trading goods and services. They go on Shark Tank, you know, and gain investors, right? They, and they earn the substantial profit with the capital they've been entrusted. And this went so well that the first two servants, they doubled their master's money. But then there's this other guy, right? The last servant. We don't know exactly why yet. We'll get there. But he takes the talent and he buries it in the ground and he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. This whole time, the business owner is out of town. Well, so some time passes, and the business owner, he comes back, and he brings everybody together for a talent show. Uh, not this kind of talent show, but, you know, this kind of talent show. And the first servant who was entrusted, uh, but the first servant um, who was entrusted five talents, you know, he comes and he says, hey, boss, I'm so glad you're back in town. You've entrusted me with five talents. Look, I've doubled your money. Here's 10 talents. Here's all of your wealth. And the master says those words that every human heart aches to hear. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Yeah, five times one and a quarter million dollars. That's a little. I will set you over much. Come on in on Saturday and work some more. <laughs> Enter into the joy of your master. But the master is just overflowing with praise of the servant. He's worked hard. The second servant comes before him and says, you entrusted me with two talents, and I made you two talents richer. Here are four talents back to you. I've doubled your wealth as well. And we see like a proud papa, the business owner says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Although they're different amounts, it's the exact same affirmation. And listen. We can skip over this part and we can start jumping to our responsibilities and what we're called to do and we're going to get there, so hold on. But I don't want you to miss the picture that Jesus is painting of who God is here. This is so crucial of what God wants. We need to understand that when all is said and done, God wants to say, well done. No one wants to see you succeed more than God. There's no begrudging here of the master. He's ready to heap the praise upon his servants. I mean, this is why the business owner takes the time to assess their various capacities. He wants them to grow. He wants them to succeed. He wants to lavish his joy upon them. He knew they could do what he entrusted them to do. And upon their success, he lets it go. Well done, good and faithful servant. And earn my joy. It's great. You see, God is the good boss who really knows you. He knows the way he's wired you. He knows what you can handle. And he's gone through the hard work to spell out expectations and deadlines so you can actually prepare to be successful. He's the boss that sees your success as his success. He's intimately intertwined with your life. And when all is said and done, God, oh, he wants to say well done to each of his children, each one. And listen, when we see God that way, the way that he actually is, it helps us to better see who we are as people. And the way that God has wired us, the way God has designed us. You see, God has entrusted to each and every one of us so much. 
Everything in this parable is a symbol. Even money is a symbol for more, not less, but more than money. It's a symbol of all that God has entrusted us with, whether it be our bodies, our minds, our intellect, our money, our abilities, our influence, your social position, your education, your relationships. You name it. As James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. You're not the source. God is. He's given us so much. And if we looked at what he's entrusted us with, maybe we won't be so consumed with what he hasn't. If we looked at what he's entrusted us with, maybe we wouldn't be so consumed with what he hasn't. What if we stopped being concerned with where we fit on the scale? I'm a five-talent person. I'm a two-talent. I'm definitely not a one-talent person, right? Isn't that normally where our thoughts jump to so quickly? Where we fit in the hierarchy? We make it about comparison where God makes it about contribution. Trust that God knows you, that he's equipped you where you are to do the work he's called you to do. And remember, that doesn't mean that God has given everyone the same exact abilities. But he has entrusted you with a lot. No matter what society tries to tell you, no matter maybe what your parents, your children, your boss, your teacher may have said, you are of an indelible worth to God. And he's equipped you with so much to carry out his good will. And no one wants to see you succeed more than God. When all is said and done, God wants to say, well done. And if we miss that, we'll completely miss the very trajectory of history and what God's trying to do in the world and who God is in his character. So what stands in our way then? If God is our biggest cheerleader, what stands in our way from hearing well done? What's the greatest obstacle for God's children to hear what God wants to say? Well, let's look back here at verse 24. We come to the guy who was entrusted one talent, right? And maybe he didn't have the greatest capacity as others, but that's not the point. Once again, we can run easily to comparison. Remember, this business owner isn't interested in losing money. <laughs> He's not just throwing away. He actually, he believes that this person can do great things. He can actually take this talent and multiply it just like the rest. So what happens? Well, the guy with the one talent, he digs it up and he comes to the boss and he says, hey boss, I know you're really intense, all right? You've got these unrealistic expectations of people. You actually expect to gather crops at harvest in places where you didn't plant crops. Look, I was a bit terrified. So you know what I did? I just buried your stuff. Here it is. Count it. It's all there. It's hard to communicate the level of disrespect from this servant to the master, to this business owner. I want you to think about this. All this time, this employee, this servant did nothing. Absolutely nothing. The only dirt he's got under his fingernails was to bury the money. And the master, if that's all he wanted to do was to secure his wealth, he could have found a hole himself. <laughs> that's not that difficult. Everybody reading or hearing this parable in the first century, this story in the first century, would have known there were expectations to do something with what he'd been entrusted. And even on top of that, you know the reason that this servant gives as to why he did nothing? He points his finger back at the business owner. It's your fault. All of this, the reason I did nothing is because of you. 
And listen to what the business owner says in response. And interpreting and helping kind of capture the modern day essence, here's what he says. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't act like the reason you did nothing was because you were afraid. The, the master here really calls out this false fear. If you were afraid of me, if you were convinced that I act that way, you would have at least put my money in the bank and accrued some interest. No, 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 no. That's not the real reason. The master says in verse 26 this, is that you are a wicked and slothful servant. And because of that, I, won't, I don't want you looking after my money anymore. Give it to the guy who took five talents and made them into ten because apparently he has the capacity to now actually do something with what I've entrusted. And as for you, you're not allowed in my house. You show no concern for anyone other than yourself. You're unwilling to work when I know you can. So get out. So what's the greatest obstacle to hearing well done? According to Jesus here, in this particular story, there's no greater obstacle to well done than to do nothing. There's no greater obstacle to well done than to do nothing. And there's a word for this. We see it in our text. Jesus uses it. It's called sloth. What's so unique about sloth is that it's not a sin of commission. That's what we often think of as sin, meaning it's, it's evil doesn't lie in actively doing something destructive. It's a sin of omission. Sloth is the absence of a positive behavior. You could have done something good, but you chose to do nothing. And please don't misunderstand, sloth isn't just laziness. It's not nearer my couch to thee, okay? It's a... Uh, <laughs> You can be busy and still be slothful. In other words, you can be someone who knows how to rest well. You can be someone who takes days off and enjoys vacation and be really far from sloth. Philosopher Peter Kreeft has said it this way, relaxing is not sloth. The person who never relaxes is not a saint, but a fidget. <laughs> Instead, I think theologian Os Guinness maybe says it best, sloth is the modern melancholy that stems from a hatred of all things in all of life that require effort. It's simply the underlying condition of a secular era. Nothing will rot your soul and erode a culture like sloth. You see, sloth is seen in the teacher with tenure who gave up on engaging students years ago. Sloth is the auto mechanic who breaks a bolt in the engine and says... No one will notice. Sloth is the pastor who, seeing conflict in the congregation, says, whatever. It's the life lived unconcerned. It's the Bible left unopened. It's the gospel left unshared. It's racism overlooked. It's the artist that never paints. It's the forgiveness that was never extended. It's the Christian disconnected from the church. The parent avoiding their children or the children ignoring their parents. Sloth, it's all about what you're unwilling to do, where we should be willing to do it. And you know why this is so dangerous? Sloth will twist your perspective of God. No longer is God seen as someone who, when all is said and done, wants to say, well done. No, when sloth rules your life, God is seen as this overbearing boss. 
The one who's testing you to just wait for you to drop the ball and catch you in the mess. He's not someone who's entrusting you with great gifts and talents so that you now can also be heard at the end to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. No. He's just seeming to be oppressive. And the very idea that you have to be accountable to anyone when sloth rules your life sounds like an oppressive idea. You forget you're not your own. You forget that everything that you possess, you don't ultimately own. And to be asked to get to work make God, makes God feel and seem hard. You see, there's no greater obstacle to hearing well done than to do nothing, and there's nothing more destructive for your soul than sloth. But you may be thinking, okay, we get to the end of this story. Doesn't this punishment of this guy seem a bit intense? Well, I want you to imagine a principal. She loves her school. She gets there early. She stays late. She writes encouraging letters to the teachers. She visits the parents of troubled kids. But something's happening. There's, there's this one teacher where every time she walks by the room while class is in session, the students are just talking to themselves and that teacher is just reading a book. Whenever a, a, a student says, hey, teacher, I've got a question, this teacher says, why don't you just go look it up yourself? And so the principal, she brings this teacher into her office and she tells the teacher that the future of these students is on the line. And she's offered grace upon grace. She's tried warnings. She's tried leave without pay. And the students' test scores are starting to show. They're starting to plummet further and further because this teacher refuses to do nothing. Imagine if this principal left the teacher in her job, in, in, in his job. Imagine the generations of students who find themselves behind the next year and the year after that. Some get so frustrated because they're behind now that they drop out. Others, they have to work extra hard every year just to stay stay with the rest of the group. You know what the loving thing, as hard as it may be, when you think about the community, as much as the principal may wish, she could do something else. The loving thing is for this principal to fire that teacher. And everyone in that situation, when we really let the rubber hit the road, the parents, the teachers, the students will celebrate that principal's courageous decision. You know why? Because there's another ache in every one of our hearts. An ache for justice. For the vulnerable to be cared for. We have to understand that our responsibilities, what we've been entrusted, that doesn't just impact us, but it impacts everyone around us and even the people we don't see. You see, God longs to say, when all is said and done, well done, but he will not offer cheap praise. While we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, genuine faith never stands alone, but is evidenced in the work of the Spirit in our lives. We must come to understand that faithfulness is impossible without fruitfulness. And as God's children, we no longer have the right to just shrug our shoulders and say whatever. As God's children who've been tasted and seen that God's grace is so good, why would we even want to? And that's the point. If we've really genuinely tasted of God's grace, it spurs us on to greater generosity 
and engagement and activity. And so with that in mind, I want you to think about a question, a question I think that that has the potential to not only change the way you think about your relationships, but your job, your 9 to 5, your 7 to 7, every aspect of your life. Here it is. What do you think Jesus would say if he gave your review? If he stood in place of your boss, of your parents, of your children, of your friends, your coworkers, what if... What do you think Jesus would say if he gave your review? Remember, no one wants to see you succeed more than Jesus. If it's a scale of zero to 10, he wants to circle all 10s. He wants to start writing out affirmation on the way he's wired you and the way you're flourishing and the way you're carrying out what he's entrusted to you. You have no reason to be afraid of him unless you don't want to do anything. If you don't care, if you couldn't care less, then you need to be careful. So why don't we care more? What do you think Jesus would say if he were to do your review? He knows your heart, your motivations. He knows you. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's entrusted to you. He's not going to come with unrealistic expectations. He's not going to come expecting you to now fit the mold of someone else. He knows the way he's wired you. And at the end of it all, he wants to say, well done. So what do you think Jesus would say if he gave your review? And then as I thought about that question, I realized how abstract that can feel. <laughs> so <clears throat> I want to give you a next step this week. Um, I want you to find some time, and maybe you've done this before, but I want to make a personal inventory. Make a list of all that God has entrusted to you, right? Remember, everything you have is not yours, ultimately, Everything, every dollar, every minute, every breath you breathe, we sang that this morning, right? The breath you've given us, we sing back in praise. He holds everything and has trusted us with so much. So make a personal inventory. Your money, your relationships, your job. If you don't have a job, your ability to go and pursue a job, your influence, your skills, your history, your successes, maybe those failures that God has redeemed, your story, the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, God dwells in you. That is a pretty powerful gift that you've been entrusted with. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the gospel, the best news this world over that so many people don't, that you've been entrusted with to now share and to multiply. I want you to write down all that God's entrusted to you and I want you to make this personal inventory. Some people call this personal asset mapping and be as exhaustive as you can. And then I want you to do this. Hold on to that list this week and don't throw it away once you've done it once or hide it in the back of your journal. But find a day to review it once a week. For me, that's Monday. I actually learned this from Matt Perman in his book, What's Best Next? Thinking through the different roles in my life and rolling through them each week and then asking the question, going through this list, all that I've been entrusted, ask, what do I need to do with what I've been entrusted to hear well done? What do I need to do with what I've been entrusted to hear well done? Maybe I need to, am I, am I being intentional to grow in my vocational competency? Am I getting better at my job? Am I cre creating the capacity for more innovation and creativity? 
Am I empowering the poor and the vulnerable? Am I being intentional in thinking through that? Am I becoming more consistent in my devotional life, more consistent in investing in my relationships? Review that list every week. Find a day, review that list, add to it, refine it, and then ask that question and then plan your week. Be intentional. Do it at once like the first two stewards. Are you burying what God has given you and sometimes we bury it because we're ignorant and we haven't even just paid attention to what we've been given. Or are you using it? But whatever you do, don't let what you've done before or what you chose not to do before to keep you from God's well done that's still before you. Don't let what you've done before or what you chose not to do before keep you from God's well done that still lies before you. Because listen, we've all mismanaged our lives. We've all consumed God's gifts. We've all made a mess of what he's entrusted to us. And when you know it, when we didn't care about God or anything that he's doing in the world and his purposes, that's exactly when he sent his greatest treasure into the world, his son. Jesus the Christ, he came, he lived, and he died to pay a ransom so that we no longer are enemies with God. But when we embrace who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf, we now are invited in to be sons and daughters of God in his forever family. And like a loving father who unconditionally loves his children, he simultaneously wants to say well done over good work well done that his children have done. He longs to say that over each and every one of his children. We first have to hear the it is finished of Jesus on the cross who pays our ransom and pays our debt. But now as we seek to live the life we were designed to live by the power of the Spirit, he longs to now say, well done, son. Well done, daughter. And can you imagine... This is, this is all, all of this, Matthew 24 up through 25. All of these stories are pointing us to the moment when God in Christ comes and then we will be reunited with Him. Can you imagine that moment where we're standing before God and like my daughter, we say, Daddy, Daddy, look. And He knows you. He knows where you're at in your development. He knows what He's entrusted to you. He's not going to compare you one child over against the next but he's looking for what you've done with what he's entrusted to you that he might say, well done, son. Well done, daughter. And oh, how he wants to see us smile. <laughs> to lean in for that hug. And what a joy it is to make our dad proud. And listen, he's there. He's right at the door. Jesus tells us that it's near. And he's coming. And he's just about to walk in. So listen to me. When all is said and done, God wants to say, well done. Don't let sloth steal that from you. Let's pray. We bless you, most gracious God. That again, you've brought light out of darkness and caused the morning to appear. Thank you. We bless you because you send us out in health and life to the duties and activities of another day. 
Lord, we ask you to go with us through all the sunlit hours and protect us from every evil way so that when evening comes, we don't have to hide our faces in shame. Lord, in your gracious love, you've called us to be your servants and we hold ourselves in readiness today for even your smallest command. Give us the spirit to keep ourselves in continual training for the prompt fulfillment of your most holy will. Help us keep the edges of our minds keen. Help us keep our thinking straight and true. Help us keep our passions in control. Help us keep our will active. Help us keep our bodies fit and healthy. Help us remember him whose food it was to do the will of the one who sent him. O Lord of every workplace, bless all who truly desire to serve you by being diligent and faithful in their many callings bearing their share of the world's burden and going about their daily tasks with simplicity and uprightness of heart. Dear Lord, we pray for all who work on the land and with nature, for all whose work involves sheer physical labor in factories, building sites, mines, and transport, for all who buy and sell in the marketplace, for all who labor with their mind, for all who labor with their pens and computers, for all whose work is the caring ministry of home and family. God, in your great mercy, save us all from the temptations that constantly surround us and bring us to everlasting life by the power of the cross, that one day we will be able to stand first in the finished work of Jesus and in the joy of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.